Welcome to Street Smart Success, where real estate entrepreneurs share their backgrounds, experience, and lessons learned. This is Roger Becker, your host. Learn with me as I drill down with guests about their paths to success and what they're doing now. So today we have with us a animal of a guy, and that in, in, in a very good way, by the way, so impressive. Uh, he is the CEO of the Family Office Club, also the CEO of investmentclub.com. Saw a niche a while back of putting together uh, family offices and sponsors. I mean, it's just doing so many brilliant things. I'm so impressed and so excited to have this conversation and drill down. He is Richard Wilson. Richard, welcome to Street Smart Success. Awesome. Thanks for having me here, Roger. And just so uh, people don't get lost on that second URL, it's uh, investorclub.com. Uh, but we are, we're kind of domain name nerdy over here. So uh, us having too many domain names is part of my own problem. So... But appreciate that introduction and happy to be here. You're a generous man, Richard. I have egg on my face already because I just, I transcribed it wrong. I was like taking, you know, from your profile. And so anyway, you're you're a generous man. So no, it is so. It is investorclub.com. Uh, Richard, before we get into the incredibly cool stuff that you're doing, you know, serving uh, family office clubs and serving people that serve family offices. I see that you went to Portland State. And my question for you is, where are you from? Are you a, a guy from Oregon originally? Or what's the Richard background? Sure. Yeah, I was born in uh, Evanston. My dad was going to Northwestern. And then I grew up in Oregon. Um, and so I went to Oregon State University and then University of Portland. And then I moved out to Boston to get my first job raising capital. And there, I already had my MBA. So I took a bunch of master's level programs on psychology and really studied psychology of influence and persuasion and really went deep on like Robert Cialdini strategies and really applied psychology to raising capital and working with investors. And that's really what's given our company strength over the years is just really knowing that material uh, and knowing how to add value first to people just like you are on this podcast, really. Got it. Where in Oregon did you grow up? Uh, Arinka Station, um, kind of like over by the Intel and Nike headquarters in in Hillsboro and Beaverton. Got it. Okay, so so suburbs of Portland, right? And, and again, I stand to be corrected. I think I said Portland State, but it was actually University of Portland. Okay, no worries. So, can you give me, Richard, the history, if you will, of family offices? When when they seem to be beyond pervasive at this point. And have they always been? And and maybe you know, give me the background. Sure. So, technically, some form of family offices have been around for hundreds of years, right? Like when you have a large uh, estate of land and lots of agricultural holdings or mining, you know, entities, and you lived, you know, a thousand years ago, you would hire people to defend your land and expand your land, and you'd need a team of people because there's a lot going on. Uh, compared to someone who owned a very small piece of land. And so over time, there were different forms of family offices. You know, arguably the Rockefellers and others had quasi family office organizations in place. But in terms of the modern term family office and when it really started to get used is really in the early 1900s, mid 1900s, uh, but still almost nobody used the term. And when I started the business, 
uh, Family Office Club back in 2007, it was because I was trying to meet with family offices, having a very hard time learning about them, figuring out who they are, where, where they were based, what the best practices of the industry was. And so back then, a lot of people told me I was wasting my time. This family office thing would never turn into anything. Um, it wasn't a real industry, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but what I found was that as soon as I started helping people in this area and started writing, and I just written maybe 50 or 100 blog posts back then, I started getting so many family offices asking for my help. And I thought to myself, well, you're the family office. Don't you know more than I do at this point? Um, but they don't talk to hundreds of their peers per year. And so it just kind of built on itself over time. And nowadays, almost everyone in finance, at least, has heard of a family office. And that wasn't the case 15 years ago when we got started. So interesting. You know, I had a podcast a couple of years ago and uh, it was a gentleman that was uh, oversaw. It, it was his family office. I didn't know the term two years ago. So I'm uh, so thanks for bearing with the question. So I guess if you go back to like 07, when you started your business, was the not not to belabor this, but were there fewer people that were familiar with the term than today? Yeah, for sure. Um, so back then, even a $500 million in assets under management wealth advisor, when I was on a Brian Tracy TV show, didn't know what a family office was and he lived in New York City. Nowadays, every wealth manager knows what a family office is. So I think that's one way to make it very clear how much the industry has has changed in 15 years. And I really think it's just getting started. Um, nowadays, there's something called a virtual family office for those people that are worth seven to ten million, fifteen million dollars, all the way up to you know thirty, fifty million dollars. Um, after that level of wealth, you typically want at least one full-time professional or at least one half-time in-person professional helping you, um, if not more. And so back even just five to seven years ago, the term virtual family office was pretty new. So the, the industry keeps on evolving and, and changing as it grows. Hey, I I mean, I'll admit until you just said that I'd never heard of a virtual family office. So uh, very, very interesting. How did you get the idea to serve family offices in 07 and kind of what was it like starting out and, and, and what specifically at that point in time were you offering them? Sure. When I got started, I was working for a placement agent company um, in Boston and so my job was to reach out to institutional investors, but the institutional investors didn't want anything to do with the hedge fund we were representing because they only had 70 million of assets under management. They didn't want anything less than three to 500 million. So they would all hang up on me and say, nope, too small, go away. Uh, so I said, okay, I'll have to raise capital from wealth advisors. So I start, started calling on wealth advisors, but our hedge fund could only take in investors who were accredited. And a lot of wealth management firms had lower end clients with $200,000 average net worths, etc. So I thought to myself, well, where are all the wealth advisors that have all the ultra wealthy clients? And I bumped into one that called themselves a family office. And I said, Oh, that's interesting. I should just only call on these family office folks and not waste my time with the smaller wealth advisors. So I went on a mission only to do that. Because in college, I worked at an alumni call center and I tripled the next best salesperson uh, asking for donations by only calling on the business and engineering graduates. And I didn't call on the liberal arts or history degree graduates. Uh, so I just knew that that strategy worked to focus on where the value is. And um, when trying to figure out how do I work only with family offices, I found it very hard. 
you know, only people providing thought leadership back then was a Bloomberg or a Financial Times journalist who had never worked a day in their life in the industry. And there were hardly any books or resources on the industry. And so I just started sharing what I was learning in real time. We started getting 100, 500, 1,000, 3,000, 5,000 hits a day on our website. Um, I got on the front page of the Boston Globe when I was 25 years old. And I spoke in over 200 countries or in over 15 countries over 200 times. Um, just by providing thought leadership on the industry. So everything we we have here today has really grown out of providing value first and kind of providing education in the space. So you were a guy that, that I mean, <laughs> from a very young age, you were like so decisive and so definitive of, okay, here's the money is, and this is how I'm going to go after it. And uh, you didn't get bogged down in, in uh, not being successful and, and taking years to figure things out. Sometimes you, you figured out things very, very quickly. But here's my question. So when you provided thought leadership to this segment, and I'm going to call it a segment of, of family offices, even though it wasn't as crisply defined at that point in time, uh, and you were providing a lot of content and value, what exactly are you talking about? Are you talking about just ways to invest money and, and deploy capital and you know avoid risk and diversificate? I mean, what exactly were you providing at that point in time? Right. So back then, I would say, oh, I met with three family offices this week, and all three of them were asking me about compensation for their top-level executives. Um, and here's a trend I'm noticing related to that compensation. You know, the person who's head of deal origination or a CIO is going to get paid two hundred to five hundred thousand dollar base, plus maybe some carry in the deals they work in most, plus may- maybe some discretionary bonuses or bonuses from hitting KPIs. And I would share that insight. And then the next day or next week, I would say, "Oh, I just read four different articles on inflation or on." parts of a family office portfolio and how they divide their portfolio into three parts, their real estate allocation, public market, wealth management allocation, and then their operating business investments. And they have different brains helping them manage these three different segments of their portfolio typically. And I would talk about that and write about that. And then when I got a book deal with Wiley, um, I wrote the book myself. And then I thought to myself, well, what if I'm wrong? Or what if because of my young age, I'm off by 20%? I don't want to look dumb publishing a book that's not good. So I reached out to the people within my LinkedIn networking group, uh, which were family office focused. And I asked who would want to be interviewed uh, that was a single family office. And we had uh, over 110 uh, single family offices volunteer to be interviewed. We interviewed the top 30 single family offices and we put that within our book uh, that we published. And so um, interviewing family offices on investments and on very specific topics and asking them, you know, what's what's a million dollar insight you could provide to the community and pulling that information out of their brains and then providing it to the industry. It was a lot of um, just like what a good podcaster would do. So that, that type of mentality, right? To kind of document my journey of learning about the family office industry. Hey, Street Smart listeners, I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the P&L. That's why I'm recommending Assured Partners. Assured Partners helps you lower risk and therefore can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the sixth largest insurance property broker in the U.S. If you want a roll-your-sleeves-up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, Vice President, a call. 
Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 305-467-5909. You'll be glad you did. So to this drill down, and, and I just want to make sure I understand. So at that point in time, and you know, you've evolved clearly and, and it's grown to value that you provide the community. I understand that, but let's first make this overly simplistic. At that point in time, what I heard you just describe is that initially part of what you do at least was how to structure a family office. You know, what the infrastructure of a family and what, you know, what respective roles, what comps should be, et cetera. So at that time, how much of what you're doing was exactly that? And, and I get that it was kind of in its infancy in terms of its formation, maybe not in infancy, but for the sake of this conversation, let's say it's infancy. How much of, your, of what you're doing at that time, Richard, was that versus here's what you guys should be investing in? Um, almost all of it was just documenting the journey and just sharing what was going on, sharing an insight, saying, oh, I just left this meeting. It seems like this is something coming up often, or here's an interview with this family office, etc. It wasn't really me recommending what people would invest in. Um, after speaking at a lot of other people's events, um, I started to get requests through our blog and at those events to help people start family offices. So we've now helped create about 200 family offices for different ultra-wealthy families where... We help run a billion dollar plus family office right now. We help run a few hundred million dollar plus family offices and, and groups that we're helping get created right now. And then um, over time, we found that we could do three different things for families. We could keep them in mind if they say, hey, would you please keep us in mind when you find a great manufacturing deal or a golf investment or a hospitality investment? And then we just keep our top investors' mandates in mind and bring to them a great deal flow when we're hosting our 15 live events per year and we're getting emails coming in every day with deal flow. We'll keep our top investors in mind. So that's our number one way. The second way is that the smartest families we know focus their energy on just a couple of areas of investment. So for us in the operating business area, it is medical and dental practices. We invest into profitable Um, usually multi-location medical and dental practices. Uh, We like investing into dentistry, dermatology, but we're really open-minded to uh, just about any type of profitable medical practice chain. And so that gives us a lot of focus. uh, And we can provide investors with exposure there. And then our third area is that we run a Airbnb short-term rental uh, real estate platform, like a fund offering. And we get investors into a portfolio of 20 Airbnb properties um, that has a really unique structure that no one else in the industry is really, really offering that I have seen. And so over time, it's evolved into helping families in those three ways. We either help them set up their family office or we do one of those three things I mentioned, keep them in mind for their, their niche mandate or help them get into a medical practice deal or help them allocate into our Airbnb uh, real estate fund. Okay. So when you say, and just taking a half a step back, that you said you Mm -hmm. run, I think you said a billion dollar, one billion dollar family office as an example. Um, Mm -hmm. And so when you say you run that office, what does that mean? So typically we're helping run family offices in terms of acting as their head of deal origination um, or head of direct investments. Um, we oftentimes will help create a family office from scratch. Like right now for a 100 million plus net worth family in California, 
Uh, we're helping create their governance procedures, their direct investment strike zone. We're completing a PDF dashboard for their family office. We have a tool called our 50 question tool. We basically tell ultra wealthy families you shouldn't do anything until you've asked yourself these 50 questions or somebody has asked you these 50 questions. Because without those answers, nobody has any idea what you want. And they're really just trying to sell you something or push their agenda on you. But you really need to be clear on exactly where you're going and why. So you need to answer these 50 questions before you start hiring people and putting out money, etc. Um, so both for that billion-dollar family, we've closed on 18 transactions um, since we started working with them. And the last one was for $30 million. And then for the $100 million net worth family, we just engaged with them two months ago. Um, and we're putting out a 700K and a 250K uh, checks right now, but also formalizing their family office in real time and trying to upgrade their wealth management um, advisor that's in place right now as well. So we help in different ways with different sizes of families that have different you know, sizes of mandates or focuses over time. So is it a function of if you, if you run the family office, and let's say let's stick with that billion dollar one just for the heck of it, are you overseeing the infrastructure and are you interacting with executives that work there on a day-to-day basis and overseeing kind of what they do and making sure everything flows well as an entity, almost like a management consulting function, and you're also bringing them deal flow to boot? So when someone's starting a family office, like this $100 million family in in California, they have no staff, they have no one helping them with any parts of it, then I'm much more involved in getting all the pieces, all the building blocks in place. Um, As a day-to-day project manager or managing consultant, we don't really like playing that role. Um, We actually enjoy the creation process and then just playing head of deal origination or head of direct investments. So we try to step out of the way once things are set up. Um, one reason why is that we don't like having to charge a retainer or consulting fees. So we actually help set up family offices for people at no cost. We do it for free because once we get to know them and we know their strike zone very well, then we can bring things that exactly fit their strike zone. And we know why those things are within their, their mandate kind of buy box. So that's really important to us. Um, and that's made it, made it much more productive to work with many of these families. Um, and so we're not. We're not looking to be like a chief operating officer or even CEO typically. Um, We've done that before a few times. Uh, We're typically looking to shift into the head of direct investment role once everything's kind of set up and and operating full-time. All right. Thank you for being so patient as I ask these questions because, uh, you know, I've I've been a little bit slow on the uptake this morning. Thank you for clarifying that. So on the deal flow piece of it, you know, roughly then, and, and, and I could also see in this process where, boy, you, you've got to have a high level of trust with your clients. I mean, because they are, I mean, they're trusting, you know, you know, I guess in some cases, generations of wealth accumulation or, um, or certainly a lifetime of wealth accumulation. That's a very, very, uh, critical role that you're playing. In terms of the deal flow and opportunities that you bring to the table, roughly, how do you structure compensation? Yeah, great question. Um, Many times the structure is just as important as the strategy, if not more so. Um, So we really focus on structure quite a bit. Um, And the first 10 years I did this, I didn't focus on structure enough. But I want to give two examples of how we do it. One is that we will not charge an upfront fee or an annual fee 
Um, but we will either have equity in the company uh, that's disclosed to them, or we're getting a performance fee on the back end. So if they invest a million dollars and they make, you know, uh, $500,000 off the investment, then we may get a performance fee off of just the profits. If they don't make a profit, then we don't get any fee at all because we haven't really added value to them. Uh, the second structure we've come up with that we think is really unique is for uh, InvestorResidences.com. And they're putting money to work with us in that Airbnb platform. We've taken away the acquisition fee, the annual management fee, the disposition fees, the financing fees. We've taken away all those fees and said, hey, we have to have our taxes paid, utilities paid, um, our cleaners paid. Uh, we need to you know, pay our property manager, of course. But we're not going to make a dollar of profit and we're not going to take a dollar of asset management fees until you've not only gotten your money back, but you've doubled your money in the deal. And once the deal has been de-risked and you've doubled your money, uh, then we benefit. And we've found that that approach uh, resonates uh, with some family offices that we're working with. And so having it so the investor wins first and that we're not charging a whole bunch of fees just to keep our lights on. Uh, we have our core investor club business to do that um, has been something that I think gives us uh, an edge in the marketplace. And then, and then in the, the, uh, the short term rental space and, and you use the term we using that as an example, do you then identify an operator that you're investing with or do you guys, is that your business? Uh, this is our business, importantly. So um, we do value-add um, projects in the Airbnb space. So we'll take a five-bedroom beach house, convert the garage, and make it a seven-bedroom. The property that we're buying right now is in the Grand Canyon. It sits on two acres. There's two properties on it. And it can sleep 22 people and it's completely renovated. So it'll be the largest Airbnb asset in the Grand Canyon uh, junction area, but also the most renovated. So... Um, we are looking for things like buying a large acreage play and then breaking it up and putting several cabins down on it. Maybe it starts with one cabin. So it's, it's value add Airbnb strategies. And we've um, hired many hospitality and short term rental staff to our team. About 33% of our 22 person team is either from hospitality or the short term rental industry. And that helps us with the property management aspect. Um, but negotiating and structuring deals for family offices for 15 years has really helped us. You know, in a really hot market last year, we bought a property in Park City by offering all cash, high earnest money and closing in 17 days. And we got the asset at a 20% discount. And now we're up 40% on that asset. Um, and then recently, we sourced our most uh, recent transaction off market with 25% seller financing uh, at a rate that's below what the banks would lend at right now. And so... Being able to navigate a soft market or a competitive market and offer all cash or add value or source something off market or structure seller financing. I mean, all those different types of strategies combined is what I think really gives us uh, an edge in the marketplace. And it's really what's kind of fun to put to use in our own portfolio because for 15 years, we've been giving these ideas to family offices to use and helping negotiate their deals. Um, but now using these within our own platform has been a lot of fun. So if I'm you, because, and I'm not you and you're not me, and luckily for you, you're not me. One of the things is I'm very lazy. So uh, I'm thinking I would never do that because it's like too much work. So, so my question is, is like, is it one of these things where Richard, you realize 
that this is a great business. And obviously that's the case. Um, that the short term rental business is a great, you know, business for a lot of reasons. And you, then you, I mean, cause you, you, you've got 20 events a year. I mean, you've got a ton of things going on. So. How, how do you get into, for example, the short-term rental business? Did you hire one person that comes out of that business, out of hospitality, and you go, Bob or Bill or John or whatever, this is what we're going to do. You're hire number one. Let's put together a business plan. Here's some seed capital. I mean, how, how do you even get into that business in, in your yeah, capacity? Yeah, great question. So um, part of it was us doing several real estate, Airbnb-related investments to date. You know, we bought a fourplex in downtown Scottsdale. Um, it's just about doubled in value and it's an Airbnb asset. And we're selling that right now. Uh, we've got a rental property in the island of Cuba Skane and we're selling that right now for a great profit. Um, we had bought a property in Park City um, that has gone well. And we've seen a lot of uh, demand for more, more offerings in the space. But um, to your point, yes, we hired someone who managed a 14,000 square foot villa in Hawaii. She then worked at a publicly traded luxury villa management company. Uh, and then she worked at one of the top five largest short-term rental property managers in the country. They managed 700 homes. And she was in charge of furnishing the homes and managing the short-term rental guest stay experience and the performance of those assets. And so we were not looking to hire anyone yet. But she heard about what we were building and saw our website and our platform. And she said, Hey, can I come work for you? And we said, Well, we're not hiring right now. But why don't we do an interview and we'll keep you in mind. And she seemed so great that we just hired her eight months early before we needed somebody full-time as a property manager internally. So she joined our team in February this year. Um, and so she's been key as a, a key executive to help us navigate. But we have, um, as I said before, about a third of our staff were already hired away from Marriott and hospitality companies. And we have three real estate agents on our team. So we're pretty heavy in hospitality and and real estate expertise already, just because of the nature of our business and dealing with so many real estate clients all the time. And are you uh, financing these things? Are you are you coming up with the equity just out of the cash flow of of your other business endeavors? Uh, we're having family offices come in um, for half a million dollars, a million dollars plus. We have doctors and dentists investing typically a hundred, hundred and fifty thousand dollars a piece. Sometimes. $250,000 a piece. Um, as of right now today, I have $550,000 of my own money in the platform, but I have two properties on the market for sale and will be at well over seven figures of my own capital invested uh, soon, as long as one of those uh, two closes, hopefully both do uh, by this year. But this will be my biggest investment on my balance sheet besides just my core illiquid family office club. You know, business holding. So, um, but one reason why we're going through all the pain and suffering building this is that institutional ownership of Airbnb assets is very low. Uh, it's under 1%, where they own 25% of all apartment buildings. And uh, we don't see a lot of people scaling credible platforms in the niche. And so we feel like we're a little bit ahead of that curve. And we think this is scalable to a billion dollar balance sheet level. And we know once we get to 70 million, 100 million in AUM, that we have many billion dollar plus balance sheet partners we could go to to scale and get 50 and 100 million dollar chunks of capital at a time because uh, one of our two media platforms besides the family office club is called commercialrealestate.com and it's a billion dollar plus uh, balance sheet club that's free to join for anyone who manages a billion dollars plus and we help source for them co-gp jv partners 
And one of our other media platforms is billionaires.com. We bought that last year with a few investors and we have billionaires speak at our conferences and we interview them and publish those interviews on our website for free. Um, and so I think the, the easier part will be going from 100 million to 500 million. The harder part is going from you know, launching to getting to that 100 million in assets under management. So that's the, the phase we're in right now. How much did you have to pay for billionaires.com? Uh, we paid just under half a million dollars for that. But if we get one billionaire relationship, then we're ahead of the game. And uh, one day I'll sell it to uh, someone else. You know, And if I just get the money I, got, I put in and get out of it, then that's fine. Uh, but we've really enjoyed interviewing the billionaires and the, the extra access that's came with owning that has already been uh, worth it. So we're excited to see where that goes over time. I mean, I didn't know. I, I actually thought it would have been more. Yeah, but I have yeah, no idea. Yeah, it blows my mind. Like, why? Why wouldn't Goldman Sachs or some big company that works with hundreds of billionaires like just pick that up? Right? They spend that. They spend that much on private jet travel per month, and they're just like, "Nah, we don't want the website that's for the most valuable clients of planet Earth. Forget that." Right? Who owned? Who owned <laughs> like, it? Okay. Who did you buy it I'll from? Buy it. Oh, some some IT guy who sat on it for fifteen years. You know, I I it, you know it's funny about both of those assets is they both took me 12 years to negotiate. I followed up for 12 years, every two to six months and followed up and said, Oh, will you sell it to me? Will you sell it to me? And uh, they both wanted 1.1 to 1.2 to $1.5 million over the years. And we closed on both during COVID. They both caved on their prices finally after 12 years of following up with them. Um, both took over 100 emails of negotiation. And with commercialrealestate.com, they told me, no, we're done negotiating. Go away. We're not talking to you anymore. And then I kept coming back to them with uh, creative structures and offers and we got it done. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, for one, I'm not going to accuse you of not being an amazing entrepreneur. I'm really not. Do you sleep more or less than four hours a night? <laughs> I usually sleep six to seven. I, six or six and a half is probably the average. Uh, I used to sleep less, but now I'm pretty anti-caffeine. Most of the year, um, unless I've got a night where I'm only sleeping three hours or something, I just don't consume like the coffee and just don't don't consume caffeine. And that way, when if I'm tired, I go to sleep. You know, imagine that versus just like synthetically being awake. I just sleep better without being you know jacked up on coffee all the time. You know, a number of years ago, when you could see here my 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 Starbucks, a number of years ago, I switched to decaf. Um, yeah, but I will tell you, decaf has has caffeine in it. I mean, right. Yeah, there's, there's a bigger difference going from, well, let's put it this way. There's a bigger difference going from decaf to nothing than from caffeinated to decaf. But that's another podcast. Actually, it's not another podcast because it would be too boring. But anyway, so you, you said that you're focused also in dental and medical. And then are you, are these funds then that you're rolling up practices? How does, what exactly is that? And then that you, and then that you're putting in your clients into these deals and it's the same kind of structure or in why? Those are like five different questions. Yeah, no problem. Um, so we, we love medical and dental practice deals because, you know, first of all, if you go to medical school and it takes you 10, 12 years and then you go into residency and then you start your own practice and then you hire employees, you hire a couple doctors, you open a second practice. The number of years you had to put into your life to get there and you went to school literally to learn how to help people, you're probably 18 years into 
this tract that you're building for yourself. That would be a very long con game if your whole goal in life was for 18 years to put in that time just to steal somebody's capital when you're raising capital. But if you're some crypto hedge fund guy or whatever, some random niche area, like you didn't put 18 years in, maybe you put four years in or you're, you're uh, one of the original people in crypto and you've been in the space for 10 years. You know, uh, and so my point is there's nothing wrong. It doesn't mean anyone's bad in these other industries, but to be a doctor who owns med- multiple medical practices, you put in a lot of years to, and you had to do the right thing a lot of time, a lot of the way along the way. And so, um, that assures us that it's less likely to be a case of a complete fraud or somebody who's truly unethical or is just there to take someone's money or take advantage. So we really like that aspect. We also love that banks love to lend to medical practices with multiple locations, multiple doctors per location, and some are close to or over seven figures of revenue per location because they rarely go out of business. Even if they lost 60% of their doctors, their revenue might dip by 30 40%. And then they would hire a few more doctors and their revenue would go back up probably. And so unless there's just massive Medicare, Medicaid fraud or embezzlement, uh, very hard for a medical practice with lots of locations and lots of doctors to just suddenly go out of business. But uh, many companies do in other fields. And so that's why banks love to lend to them. That's why we love to invest with them. And then the, the game that we're playing there currently is that we find great CEOs of medical and dental practices that are growing very nicely. The last one we invested in had 14 million a year in revenue. We help them, help them open location six. Now they're doing 23 million a year in revenue. And we don't come in and take over and become their boss and tell them what to do. We're providing minority equity growth capital. And we delay their selling of their soul to private equity because at that point they have a job and they get a big paycheck for doing that. But they probably have a two to five year earnout period. And if they can delay that, multiples are only going up in the space and they can get a very nice multiple for their platform if they could add another another location or two or five or 10. And so we bring in family office capital, my capital, and we help them add more locations and grow their revenue and EBITDA before going to the private equity world for capital. So they use bank capital, they use our capital, uh, and then they... They grow from there. So we're doing those deals now with uh, dermatology clinics, dental clinics, different types of medical clinics. Um, but we also happen to own uh, dermatologist.com. And long-term, we do want to start acquiring more dermatology clinics. And that might be one where we would take a majority control spot um, because we have the Fifth Avenue real estate for bringing new patients in. Uh, each month to those clinics, if we could build a brand around that. So, in case there's any dermatologists listening, you know, please reach out, and uh, I'd be happy to to work with medical, you know, uh, doctors who uh, to run their own practices of any type. But that's a a long answer to your five part question. I answered at least two parts. <laughs> I don't I don't know if I missed a couple. <laughs> you know what? And I and I I'm just I'm just following uh, I'm just following along here. So I forgot the other three out of the five. But um, okay. yeah, so, so you're so, so you're basically going to the person, the the founder, owner, what have you, and they're staying on, and you know, ideally they have more you know tank in their gas or more gas in their tank rather, maybe two to another two to five years, and you're injecting capital to basically grow, maybe get some more efficiencies along the way in the multiple. Uh, then there's arbitrage on the multiple to sell it to private equity. Right. Yeah. And importantly, it comes back to structure again. So we can structure this a number of ways. Uh, we've done one deal where the 
the medical practices here, the private investors put their money in. And then every month, regardless of what profits are, the investors get 3% of gross revenue paid out to them every month until they get double their money. And then they're out of the deal. And now the CEO of the medical practice didn't get diluted at all long term because the investor was only there temporarily until they doubled their money and then they're out of the deal. We've done another deal and we structured it so that the investors, including myself, get a gross revenue royalty until we get 1.2 times our money back. But we don't have equity. We have an equity warrant, which is like a right of participation when they sell their business one day. And we have 18% of an equity warrant uh, or right of participation. And after we get a 1.2x return, our money is all off the table. Then it goes from 18% to 16%. Um, and we have other deals where we're just investing and we, we just have simple equity uh, in the platform uh, or a board role or advisory board role. So there's many different ways to structure these types of deals to be very beneficial to investors, uh, win-win for everyone involved. And um, that's a lot of what we, we add value to with families is not just sourcing the deal, but structuring how capital comes into the deal and, and the different share classes within that LLC. Uh, in, in these deals, and uh, in, in inevitably, it's you know deal to deal. But when you say you take a minority equity stake, stake, what what's an example percentage wise? Yeah, sure. So one group, um, I was going to add a lot of strategic value to them. So I bought five percent of the medical platform, uh, and I only had to pay a two point five percent, you know, valuation. Another group has seven locations, but they're very unorganized on the bottom level. So I'm meeting with them this week. And we're going to be a 50-50 partner in the DSO, the dental service organization. And so additional locations will own 50% of the existing ones. He'll still own himself, but we'll be 50-50 partners going forward. Uh, with another group, we make money off of uh, one location. But then if we source new locations, we get to be an equity partner and those deals that we sourced and brought to the table. So it's unique per deal. Um, and it depends how much of their help, um, how much of my help they need. Okay. And then do you take, so outside of the family office relationships that you have, um, do you, and, and I think you said like, for example, uh, on the short-term rental side of things, I don't want to get things confused here, but you'll take even like 150 grand from a, a dental from a dentist, I think you just threw that out as, as an example. So, for these businesses that you're acquiring, you know, in the medical field, will you take retail investors, um, or are you just pretty much dealing with family offices? Yeah, we'll take retail investors. Um, for the Airbnb fund, our minimum is twenty five thousand dollars, but most investors come in for seventy five thousand to two hundred thousand. Those that are worth more than five to ten million are usually putting in two hundred fifty thousand to five hundred thousand. Um, for the medical practice deals, sometimes we'll have the minimums be seventy-five thousand or as low as fifty thousand. Uh, we haven't done as low as twenty-five thousand yet. Part of the reason is that with the medical practice deals, we'll go to the doctors we know best or who are from that area of specialty. And like with one of our deals, we had seventeen doctors we were going to show the deal to, and the first doctor we showed it to took the whole deal. Um, so it just filled up very quickly. That's not always going to be the case, though. And we love going to people who are just you know nice people, easy to work with. You know, don't take nine months to decide on something if there's a great opportunity in front of them. Um, but we are open to working with kind of retail quote unquote investors, and we've got about three hundred dentists and doctors in our network that we either either invest with or that come to our events that we're kind of getting to know over time. And speaking of your events, the tw the twenty uh, family office events, how many people go to those events typically? 
Um, our last event in New York had 1,100 people um, attending. Uh, of those 1,100, I think 600 of them were there in person in Manhattan and Times Square. Um, we've got two workshops this week. And so out of our like 15 to 20 live events per year, it's usually a dozen or so of these workshops for people raising capital. And if you are a charter member in the Family Office Club and you have that annual or monthly membership, you can come to all 15 live events a year. But once a quarter, we will have a 1,000 plus person investor club summit. And our next one is called the Family Office Super Summit in December. And it's a three-day event with uh, Oceanfront Terrace Cocktails the night before at the Westin Beachfront Hotel in Fort Lauderdale. And over those three days, we'll have about 1,700 people there and 150 speakers on stage. And um, 70 to 80% of the speakers will be family offices and private investors and investor club platforms. And so by coming, you just get to hear from a river of insights and mandates and strategies and structures and what's happening, but also meet new investor leads and peers. And so the combination of our workshops where we give people 20 to 30 strategies on raising capital in a five-hour in-person workshop or virtual, combined with listening to all those investors on stage and then connecting with a few investors at the Investor Club Summits is really the, the core value we try to give people at the Family Office Club. Got it. Phenomenal. Are there family offices that are doing their own syndications uh, within their family office and then they're going out and raising money? And uh, I think I've heard of that. You're nodding your head. So go, go ahead. Yeah, for sure. I mean, some truly are syndicators that have done well for themselves and they'll kind of be a little bit cheap in wolf's clothing, you know, or a wolf in sheep's clothing and that they'll be. Um, they say, oh yeah, we're a family office. We invest in real estate. Um, but every time you talk to them, they're pushing their syndication and they're really a syndicator of real estate. And you know they happen to make their money that way. And that's fine. Maybe they are ultra wealthy or very wealthy or successful. Um, but there are other family offices that... Like one of my clients that helped us acquire commercialrealestate.com, they do a billion dollars a year in construction of multifamily, solar, and student housing. And they're very sharp. When they want to win a construction bid, they'll take their own balance sheet money and say, hey, we're not just a construction company. We're also very successful. So why don't we put a million dollars in this project as an LP investor? Because you're probably raising capital for this deal. And you hire us for the construction bid. And now you know that we're going to do a good job in the construction because our own money is at risk here in the deal. Um, and that group has gotten so sharp at doing that with that smart approach that they get great access to deals and they have started to syndicate some of their deals over time. And that was never their original business. It was never their original intent, but they found that other families do want access to these opportunities. And so it's turned into part of their business. That's a very genuine path versus somebody who starts out with almost no net worth or a million or two million net worth. They do syndication business, they raise capital all the time, and then they they get wealthy enough to say they have a family office, but truly they're not looking to allocate. They're really looking to raise capital from every person they talk to. So, you know, it's just something to be aware of in the industry. The term gets thrown around in different ways, just like in, in any industry where the, a term becomes more popular. I'm I'm gonna take a little bit of a of a I'm gonna switch gears a bit. In the family office world at large, how much of their and again, I'm sure office to office is it's different, but, but broadly speaking, how much money is getting allocated to alternatives these days versus traditional and and how much is going into operating businesses and et cetera? Like what's the market look like these days? 
Sure, sure. One thing to know about most families is that they have a large part of their net worth as being illiquid in their business. And so if you look at their cash that they can deploy, then it's different than what their net worth pie chart might look like. You know, just like with myself, um, who knows what Family Office Club would be worth to a strategic investor, but it's the largest asset on my balance sheet. But if you take that out of the way, it's not something I'm constantly putting new capital into all the time. It's just a business that's growing organically. Um, so if you put that to the side and you look at where family offices put their cash and their free cash flow, that's, that's usually what most people mean when they ask that question to me. Um, and what I typically find is that 35 to 45% is in some form of wealth advisory, public markets, you know, bond stocks, ETFs, indexes, etc. Uh, we typically find that around 25% is in real estate. And in that real estate bucket, 80% of it is cash flowing value add real estate and 20% developments. It's just kind of the average, most common thing we hear. Um, and then in terms of hedge funds or other alternative investments, um, we're usually seeing that managed by the wealth advisor, honestly. Um, and that's how they're getting their allocation to most alternatives, unless they just really see something they love, like a life settlement strategy or some other niche hedge fund strategy that kind of breaks through the clutter and they say, okay, that that looks valuable enough. We should allocate a bit to that. In the area of investing into operating businesses, um, many times it's only 10% of their free cash flow, sometimes up to 20% because they can take a small amount of capital and then really magnify the value of that asset. And then a very large percentage of their pie chart or their total net worth is in that one industry without having to invest as many dollars as they put into real estate or wealth management. They can just get great results. Just like when we bought 5% of the company for 2.5% or with another company, they just gave us 33% equity in their company to be on their board and help them grow without investing any money. And so those are great examples of you know picking up equity stakes and things without having to pay the full retail amount because of your strategic value to them. Um, and so that that has to be mentioned as part of the answer. But the one exception to everything I just said is that if the family made their money in trading bonds or commodities or the stock market, then typically 70, maybe even 80% of their net worth might be in the public markets. And if they made their money in real estate, I know some families that have 60, 70, 80, 90% of their net worth in real estate because they're so confident in their abilities in the real estate industry. So, you know, all that said, obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, I don't know who you are. And it's not a recommendation for you as a family, you know, your your risk parameters, your income needs, you know, how old you are, all those things, you know, should be consulted upon from an expert. And you really need to be asked those 50 questions that everyone should be asked when they're starting a family office to really then have an opinion given to you on what you should be investing in and what amounts. Well, thank you for that. What do sponsors need to know when they are trying to raise money from a family office? I think it's very important to be concise and unique. So having a one-sentence description of what you do and how that's different than everybody else in your space is absolutely critical. And almost nobody has that. You need a three to five minute video from your founder on your one pager in the first few pages of your pitch deck. Uh, Almost nobody has that. Almost everyone has a 40 to 65 page pitch deck. It should be probably 12 to 19 pages. So people actually read it. If you put the word Mickey Mouse in the middle of your pitch deck that's 50 pages long and tell your team to review it, I bet you 80% of people that review it won't even see that word because even your own team doesn't read your whole pitch, pitch deck when it's that long typically. And then I found that 
The most valuable investors want really concise messaging up front before they know you. They have to de-risk their time. So if you're not concise, you're not straight to the point, you're not unique, then you're just not even going to exist on their radar. And they just will archive your email and just move on if they can't get what you're doing in two seconds really quickly. Got it. And, and I would say, you know, the, you know the, the Mickey Mouse example, it could even be like in a 24-point type and they still wouldn't see it. Um, right. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> okay. What is your overall take on the market these days in terms of where to invest money as it pertains to asset class? Well, obviously you're, you're, you're bullish on, on, uh, you know, medical practices and short term rental, but how do you see the world globally in terms of real estate, in terms of private equity, et cetera? We're in really weird times right now. This is, uh, beginning of October 2022. Right. Yeah. I mean, I see, further recession and uh, lowering of real estate prices uh, coming here in Q4 and Q1. I try not to predict stuff out too much further than that, just because you never know if the government's going to print a trillion dollars here or there or some other huge move's going to happen. It's hard to predict things over two to four years. But um, I do see things getting worse in the short term, which is great news for people that have capital to deploy because they'll be getting better prices on things and they won't feel dumb buying at the top of a market. Uh, that has too much momentum or is artificially inflated uh, by a number of different factors. So uh, we do see that going on. But related to your point on the medical practices on Air- and Airbnb assets, the best answer is that the smartest families I know, it's not about, oh, it's all about medical and Airbnb. It's about that is the game board we've designed for ourselves that plays to our strengths. And so the best place for another family to put their wealth is going to be related to the game board that is designed for themselves related to their strengths. Because if you can add value to a multifamily property and you can take a 40plex or a 400plex and you can add 30% more units by converting garages into ADUs or you can add storage to these properties because there's extra acreage on them and you can boost that NOI then you have ways to protect yourself and make money regardless of the type of market potentially. Um, but if you're just riding market momentum and crossing your fingers and buying things and just, you know, painting them and doing a little bit of landscaping, you don't really add value, deep value, then you can't be as confident and you don't have a strong game that's going to survive in all different types of weather conditions of the market. So that the best thing for families to do is to develop their own unique, strong game where they're adding a lot of value to whatever operating business or real estate niche they're really focused on and to only invest in others who are also playing a very unique game. That's going to re- produce results regardless of the weather. I think that's the, you know, a timeless thing for people to hear, even if they're hearing this five years after you've recorded this and it's 2027. I think that'll still be true. Yeah, I uh, makes a ton of sense. Um, I mean, if there's enough value, you know, unless there's some black swan, you know, crazy stuff, whatever. Uh, if you're buying it cheap enough, for lack of a better word, and there's a va- and there's a value add play, it's kind of like that transcends what's going on in the economy at any given point in time, assuming you're a great operator, et cetera, et cetera. On the medical practice front, how many people, how many entities are out doing what you're doing The basically, you know, the business plan? I don't know how many are doing what we're doing. There's a lot of investment bankers that broker deals, but they're trying to sell majority equity shares 90% of the time. And there are a lot of private equity firms, 140 private equity firms that we know of that are buying medical practices, but very few uh, provide minority equity growth capital. Uh, I would say there's probably 
you know, we know of a dozen or so. So there must be three or four dozen. I'm sure we don't know everybody. Um, but there's not as many doing what we do. Most people take that majority control seat and that control position with the medical practice uh, space. So that's what allows us to be unique in the in the industry. Got it. So I guess you're you're for you to uh, be more attractive than one of the private equity firms, you've got to have the guy that wants to stay on a little bit longer and kind of uh, complete the dream with you, as opposed to ready right. to turn over the keys right now. They're said they're six seventy five years old. They're done, and yes, I, I don't want to do this anymore. Right. Yeah. Sometimes they feel like they haven't really met their full potential yet. They want to grow, but they're growing organically by just one clinic a year. But they wish they could grow at four clinics a year and they have the horsepower to do so mentally. They don't have the capital to do so. And they they feel like if they sell to private equity now, they might get a nice $5 million or $7 or $12 million check. But they know that they could build something that could be worth $20, $30, $50 or $100 million. And so if the capital is the missing part of the equation, then we help provide that. And sometimes it's because they're a younger doctor. Sometimes it's because they need to buy out a few partners and actually grow because they're growing very slowly right now by not buying out those partners that don't care about growing as much. So there's a number of different issues that can uh, slow things down. And how are they finding you? Are they finding you? Are these guys winding up at your family office events or are you more integrated into their conferences and in their vertical niche and, you know, the, the dermatologists, like you said, of the world or the endodontic guys or, you know, the orthodontics? How, how do they find you or you find them? Yeah, great question. So we bought the largest social media asset in dentistry. Uh, two months ago, it has 375,000 members. It was called Dental Peeps. We rebranded it to Dental Club. So you can check that out at dentalclub.com. Um, we also have a division called the Doctors Investor Club. Um, our dentist investments are done under D- Dentist Investors LLC. We talk to a lot of doctors via social media. Uh, doctors and dentists can come to any of our live events for free. I'm also on retainer in a club of doctors, 103 doctors. We meet every quarter for four days in Park City and Key West, and we go on cruises together. And they get really get to get inside the mind of medical practice owners by going there because all 103 of them are medical practice owners. And then we also have a uh, partnership with a platform of about 1,500 doctors where we put out content for them. So we're always looking for more platforms and ways to access, whether it's conferences or YouTube channels or podcasts. And uh, we really enjoy working with doctors and dentists, people that want to start a family office. And then we interview billionaires and have some of them speak at our conferences. We work with the most doctors and dentists. There's a medium amount of people starting a family office at all times. And then the billionaire segment is kind of the high-end segment. So those are the three kind of sleeves of people we work with most often. Got it. Richard, you've been so generous in so many ways, just with your time and also the patience of of my so uh, fundamental questions. I have one last question and it's this. If you just think about everything that you do and have done, what what would you say are the key thing or things that you've learned? Mm -hmm. I think the most important thing is not just moral integrity, but integration of, of things in your business and life. You know, the food you eat, the media you consume, where you live, what friends you have, what books you read, what shows you watch, the logo you choose for your business, the clothes you wear, all of those things, if they're competing with each other and there's friction, then life and business become painful and it goes slower. But if you're in line with who you want to be, where you're going, who your clients are, 
and you know what your clients need and what you enjoy doing and all those things are nicely aligned and you've got the right people on your team, the right values for your company, then things go faster and faster. And the more that things are not integrated, the more that there's friction and just unneeded you know, slowness and frustration along the way. So I think that's the most important thing I could share with with others. And if you're raising capital, the more integrated you are and aligned with the investor, the more they're going to put money with you. And if you're an investor, the more integrated your allocations of capital are, the more they're in line with where you're trying to go and your income needs and your risk appetite. And it's really what's best for your family because your decision was well integrated with kind of uh, your goals as a family. Wow. That's one heck of an answer. Most people say, well, you know, I don't, you know, be diversified or, you know, you get a, <laughs> right, or you get the same lessons or, you know, be careful on a partnership, whatever the heck it is. That was a brilliant, brilliant answer, which leads me to the last question. I just said, and this always stumps people, Richard. So I, I, sure. I, are you prepared for the hardest question? Go for it. All right. What is one thing people don't know about you? Uh, one thing people don't know about me is that. Uh, like a 12-year-old kid, I just, I basically, I like playing video games. I like things I like go-karts and laser tag. And my bachelor party was literally like a 12-year-old's birthday party. We did, um, I got married like 12 years ago, by the way. It wasn't recently, but we went and did mini golf, laser tag, Buffalo Wild Wings, poker, skydiving, go-karts, and play video games. So... That's something about me that most people don't know. <laughs> I got it. Well, listen, you know, this has been, uh, you know, I, I, I am so impressed with what you're doing. It's like, wow. How would one, uh, if they were to want to engage with you, find out more about what you're doing, participate in some of the things? How does one get a hold of you, Richard? Sure. Uh, if you want to see our conferences and workshops coming up or membership in the Family Office Club, if you're raising capital, you can go to familyoffices.com and see our event schedule coming up. We do 15 live events a year all over the place in different cities. Um, if you want our free book on raising capital, you can go to capitalraising.com. If you are an investor and you'd like to work with us directly, uh, there's two places to check out. You can go to investorclub.com and just register there real quick. We'll get scheduled on a phone call. Um, or if you want to learn more about our medical practices or our Airbnb investment uh, platform, you can go to investorresidences.com. And my, my email is just richard at investorclub.com. And my uh, phone number, if you want to text me, is 305-333-1155. Got it. Richard, thanks so much. And uh, uh, looks like you have a photo behind, uh, a painting, a picture behind you. You have kids, you have family, you're on the road, you're making stuff happen. Thank you so much. And I can't wait to do this with you again, maybe next year. Awesome. Appreciate it. Thanks, Roger. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. 